Welcome to the Sunwater Institute's Reforming Congress interview series. Today's interview is with former Congressman Mickey Edwards. Edwards is a visiting lecturer in public and international affairs at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School. Before coming to Princeton, he taught for 11 years at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Prior to teaching, Edwards is a member of Congress for 16 years and was a member of the House Republican leadership, a member of the Appropriations and Budget Committees, and the ranking member of the House Subcommittee on Foreign Operations. And now to our host, Matthew Shervenak. Representative Edwards, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, Matt. Glad to be with you. Why don't we start with your background? You've had quite a career uh, with uh, lots of time uh, in and out of government. Could you give us kind of your, your own perspective on your, on your career and your history? Uh, it's been a long career. Um, I started out as a journalist, uh, newspaper man. I have a journalism degree um, and worked for newspapers. Uh, and then I ran for Congress, served 16 years in Congress. Um, worked a little bit for an ad agency uh, at one point uh, and before I went to Congress. Uh, and I, you know, I have, I've, I'm a teacher and, and I love teaching. So after I left, after my 16 years in Congress, uh, I went and um, I taught at Harvard for the next 11 years. Uh, and then I went to Princeton and then I went back. I was asked to go back to Washington, the Aspen Institute, where I was a vice president and created a uh, political leadership program for young elected officials, uh, all handpicked by me, 24 at a time, 12 Democrats, 12 Republicans from around the country, who were, I thought of as rising stars. So one was a local district attorney in San Francisco named Kamala Harris. Uh, one was a city councilman who, uh, Eric Garcetti, who is now the mayor of Los Angeles, he's gonna be the new uh, ambassador to India. Uh, Stacey Abrams, who in Georgia, who is a state legislator. Uh, so there are a number of members of Congress, a uh, number of governors, uh, two, a former national chairman of the Republican Party and former national chairman of the Democratic Party, uh, who all came through my program. So uh, a lot of members of, uh, of state legislatures. So I, I've done that. And now I'm back at Princeton again. I, in terms of, of prior to that, and uh, prior to my career. Um, uh, I, I grew up in, in very modest, I don't want to say poor because there are some people who are, you know, really deep poor, but, but uh, in may, maybe the middle, the bottom half of, of middle income uh, uh, and, you know, a, a Jewish family that had come from uh, uh, Poland and Lithuania uh, and nobody in my family had ever gone to college before. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, unlike the perception of who serves in government and where they come from, you know, a lot of people like me who in fact uh, uh, came out of nowhere and, and uh, you know, decided to run, that, that's what we do in America, you know, you, you get, you run because you self-select, I'm going to run, I want to do that. And uh, uh, so that, that's kind of what it is, kind of where I came from. And so your time in Congress, can you talk a little bit about that? You know, what, what you know, sort of committees or positions did you hold and, and, you know, a little bit of perspective on, you know, from the beginning until the end? Sure. I, uh, when I got there, I must say that uh, 
on the first day, I, you know, I mentioned that we came from a, a low income Jewish family. And the very first day that I was sworn in, my mother was in the, uh, my father had died, but my mother was uh, uh, in the uh, audience watching. And, and she said afterwards, which I'll never forget, she said, who are we to have a member of Congress in our family? And because there is this perception especially if you're not from America originally or haven't been familiar. Uh, there's this perception that, you know, holding offices, members of Congress or parliament or whatever, uh, that's for the, the elites, right? And who are we to have somebody who's in a position like that? Um, I, I won't ever forget that. That was a telling moment. Um, I ran, I, I, I worked as a staffer uh, for a while on the Hill uh, and to be quite frank, um, I decided to run. I'd always cared about Congress, cared a lot about it, but I decided to actually run because I was the editor of a medical journal. I left that part out, uh, editor of a medical journal. Uh, I, I've done a lot of different things. Uh, and so I went to the Hill as a staffer, you know, as an expert on healthcare. Uh, but I looked around, I watched these members I was working with and, and said, well, I can do this job better than they can. So uh, I went back and, and ran for office uh, and to show that I'm not as brilliant as I want people to think I am. Uh, I'm a Republican, I was a Republican, I'm not a Republican anymore. Uh, but as a Republican, I ran in a district that had not elected a Republican since 1928. My district was 74% Democrats, uh, overwhelming everybody they elected to anything was Democrats. But I got 49% of the votes and the incumbent uh, decided to hang it up and I ran the next time and I won uh, and became the first Republican in that district in, in uh, well over a quarter century. And, and so that's kind of how I got started when I got to Congress. Um, we were in the minority, my Republican party was very much in the minority, but uh, I served on the Education and Labor Committee I served on the interior committee, which, so I, I can prove to you, Matt, that I am not radioactive because I was on the small task force that investigated uh, the accident at Three Mile Island, you know, wearing our hazmat suits. Uh, and then, you know, Geiger counters or whatever they are afterwards, you know, prove that I was not radioactive. Um, later, I, after a couple of years, I was selected for the appropriations committee. And then for the, I was later on the appropriations and the budget committee, one of the very few members to serve on both. Uh, I was elected to uh, the Republican leadership and was chairman of the Republican policy committee in the house. So I was one of the top four party leaders in, in Congress. Um, and you know, that was basically it. And uh, when I left, I lost my last election uh, after 16 years in a primary and when I, left, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, had no clue, hadn't talked to anybody about a job. Uh, I had been approached about being a lobbyist. I didn't want to be a lobbyist. Uh, and out of nowhere, the dean at the, uh, the Kennedy School at Harvard said, we've had several people contact us saying, we ought to see if we can get you to come teach at Harvard. And so I said, okay, I have no idea what I was doing. I'd never been to the Boston area before in my life. Uh, and um, but I had taught a little bit of law school after I got, I, I went to law school uh, at night uh, and had taught a course or two there. So I did it and, and I loved teaching. I love it. I, so I, they signed me up for, I think, three semesters and kept reappointing me. And I stayed there for 11 years. And then 
the dean at the uh, Wilson School at Princeton asked me if I'd come over to Princeton to teach, which I did. Uh, then I went back to Washington to the Aspen Institute. And now I've gone back to Princeton where I'm again, I'm a visiting professor there. Uh, and I love the classroom and I love teaching. And, you know, so yeah, it's a lot of different careers, but they've, they've all been fun. Fantastic. Well, why don't we talk about some of the major themes that um, that that seem to recur in, in, in your background? And one of them is this um, idea of uh, um, conservatism. Um, and I think that notion has changed over time, at least according to some of the things that you've talked about. So can you talk to us about what does this mean, conservatism, and, and, and what's your perspective on it over time? Obviously, you've written on the subject extensively, but if you could talk a little bit. Well, I wrote a book in 2008 called Reclaiming Conservatism, which was, which was published by Oxford University Press. Uh, and that was tracing. I actually traced uh, the changes in the Republican National Convention platform, you know, from the 60s through, uh, through George W. Bush and showed how it changed. When I first came into uh, Republican politics, uh, I supported Barry Goldwater. And Barry Goldwater was a libertarian. He wasn't really a conservative. He, he was a uh, he you know was for a very strong national defense, but, but he was uh, he was more libertarian. It was more out of the John Locke kind of philosophy, you know, of uh, as much as possible, the people should be free to pursue their own lives. It wasn't anti-government, but it was government within its constitutional limits, uh, and that's what I did, and that's that's who was basically dominating conservative politics at the time. I always used to say conservative was not really, that, that was a term that was applied to us uh, by people in the media or academics. We were really something closer to the, a classical European liberal, you know, out of John Locke. It was, it was like uh, focus on the individual and the individual's rights. Um, over time, but at the same time, so I became the national chairman of the American Conservative Union. I became one of the three founders of the Heritage Foundation. I was the chairman of the Conservative Political Action Conference. And I, and I saw over time, people affiliated with those groups became much more like European conservatives. And, and by Winston Churchill is my idea of a European conservative. I thought he was a great wartime leader, but I'm not a big fan of Winston Churchill. And, and Churchill once said, that the, he identified, uh, he was asked what conservatism is. He said it's reverence for the church and the king. Uh, whereas in America, we decidedly don't want a king uh, and we decidedly keep church and state separate. So uh, it's a, it was very different. But I saw over time, there are people who were much more like that European conservative model, you know, a strong leader, like a king or whatever, a strong leader. Um, with as little pushback from the legislature as possible uh, and more religious uh, instead of religious diversity, more uh, promoting a certain view of religion. Um, and so what today is called conservatism and what was called conservatism in the mid 60s are very, very different animals. And, and so what I came to realize and a lot of others who came into the movement when I did uh, was that 
what what's going on now under the brand conservative really has nothing to do with what we thought. You know, we were not anti-government. We were for limited government, but that's very different. Uh, we were not for a strong uh, dictator kind of a king-like person at the top. We were for the Congress and 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 uh, early early editions of the uh, Republican National Convention platform. You know, would advocate having a stronger Congress to stand up against uh, you know an overreaching president. So it's really, Matt, it's hard to question to answer because they're really different things. What we have today is has no relationship whatsoever to the conservatism that uh, existed in the 60s and the early 70s. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about this concept of conservatism in its traditional sense as applied to Congress. So we've talked about, you talked about limited government, you've talked about it as a, as a way to balance um, you know, an overreaching executive potentially. Can you talk more about, I guess, in your original conception of conservatism, what should the Congress look like? Well, what's the main feature of, of, of the Congress? I mean, there are a lot of things that are important in it. Uh, and I'll mention a couple later, but uh, the main feature is separation of powers. Uh, and the sub- are, you know, subset under, under separation of powers is which is the first branch and which is the branch that has the most power in the Constitution, not in terms of what's been seized since, but it's the Congress. Only Congress can declare war. I see every day people on the news referring to the president as our commander in chief. He's not our commander in chief. We don't have a commander in chief. He's commander in chief of the military when it's called into active service but he is not commander in chief of the country. We don't have such a thing. Uh, so the model that the founders set up was the people's representatives in the House and the Senate were going to have the majority of power, control what money is spent, control whether you can go to war, control what our taxes are gonna be, control what your spending is gonna be and what you're gonna spend it on. Um, and that model, that constitutional model is what conservatives used to support. We supported the Constitution in its in its form. Um, it was a the Constitution is a very clear. Most political scientists don't know this. It very clear break from the British system. It's a break, a deliberate break from parliamentary systems. Parliamentary systems sort of meld the executive and legislative together, uh, and our system is exactly the opposite, so that. Uh, in Great Britain, for example, your party will determine whether or not you, you will represent, uh, you know, if, if I live in Massachusetts, you know, the party will decide who's going to represent this area in Massachusetts uh, in Congress. Uh, but our, our Constitution says you must be an actual resident, actual inhabitant of the state from in which you're elected. Very opposite of the, their system. The Constitution says you cannot serve in the executive branch and legislative branch at the same time. The whole basis of parliamentary systems is that you serve in both at the same time. So um, our system is to divide power and not let power be concentrated. Uh, and that's what we as conservatives, when I came into this, really felt strongly about, avoiding the concentration of power. And so it sounds like um, not only that, but you, you saw that the Congress, uh, his power had been eroding um, already at that point. And, 
you know, it, it had lost, you know, its position as the primary uh, driver of the American political system. Is that right? Well, what I saw was the rise of the party system so that um, if you had a Democrat in the White House and you had Democrats in Congress, they would go along with what the Democrat in the White House wanted to do. Uh, that, that was common, very uncommon to stand up against a president of your own party. So that allowed presidents to grab more power. Uh, it was also true uh, that if a president, there, there were problems that arose that seemed to many members of Congress, and this is legitimate, beyond their capacity to reasonably deal with. When you, when you got to a place where there were nuclear weapons and missiles, you know, uh, and you required fast action, members of Congress, even like me, would say, I can sit here and insist that the president should not be able to respond, uh, but we may not have, you know, three weeks to debate and deliberate, you know, about what to do. And so change in history, change in circumstances also caused the presidency to grow stronger. Uh, but for large part, it was not presidents grabbing power. It was pro Congress ceding power to the president. And one example of that is both parties now. I'll be, I'll be very harsh here, but I, but I mean it. I don't think either party cares about political process anymore. And democracy is all about process. That's what democracy is, not outcome, but process. Uh, and both parties want what they want. Uh, and therefore, if you have a president of your party in the White House, you want that president to exercise you know, executive orders. Go around Congress. Don't be slowed down by Congress. You know, you've, got, you, you've got the power, just do it. And uh, that's one of the more scary things, that, that the separation of powers, which is where I started here, uh, has eroded terribly. Well, let's move on to party then, since that's the other major, uh, a major theme of your of your work, particularly over the last, I mean, for some time. Um, and at this point, you've gone beyond party. You've given up on the concept. I'd, I'd love to hear your, first, I'd like to hear your perspective on party um, and what's its appropriate role uh, in the US uh, political system. And then second, I'd like to think about a Congress without party and what would that actually look like? Let's start first with your perspective on party. Uh, well, first of all, um, even though I, I'm very critical of the political party system, uh, we're not gonna get rid of political parties. I mean, it, we don't wanna become China, right? We, we don't wanna become a place that, that really shuts down the ability of people to push back against you know, the power of the, of the party in, in, in power at the moment. Uh, so parties aren't gonna go anywhere. The problem is not the existence of political parties, and you could call it a party, a club, uh, anything you want to call it. Uh, the problem is that we have allowed them to actually, for their own purposes and to pursue their own agendas, to control elections and to control the legislative process. So here's what I mean. In terms of elections, um, in most states, uh, if you run for uh, Congress, you have to first run in a party primary. If you don't win your party's nomination, even if you would be by far the most popular person in the state and could easily win if everybody could vote, 
if you didn't win your party's nomination, you can't be on the ballot. The party controls who, th this is as anti-democratic as you can get. The party controls what choices the voters can have uh, in the fall uh, because you didn't win the primary which is dominated generally by the most ardent, the most zealous, the most partisan, uh, then you can't run. Uh, uh, parties, the, the party that controls the state legislature gets to draw the congressional district lines uh, and draw them so that uh, they're not competitive, so that uh, are not representative. It's just about what's going to get the votes uh, to get my people elected. Uh, which is completely counter to what I said before about the idea of representative government. You have to be from the state where, you, where that you're elected from. Uh, so that that's a significant part of the problem that we have, Matt, is not parties existing, uh, but parties being able to control. So what I'm trying to do is decouple parties from running the elections and running Congress so that they would become like the Chamber of Commerce, like the National Rifle Association or the Sierra Club or AARP. They would have the ability to raise money, support candidates, uh, to ask you to vote for them, to organize for them, but they would not have the ability to decide who could be on the ballot and they would not have the ability to decide what bills can be considered for a vote you know, that you would, uh, uh, you'd have a Congress that was not driven by party loyalty. Every other organization you belong to, a board of directors, you may have some of those. You, you, you sit around a table, you say, here are the problems we have. Here are the problems. You, you may favor a certain approach. I may favor a certain approach. Let's put it on the table and let's work out what we need to do. We do that in every single thing we do in our lives, in every collective enterprise we do, except political party. You don't divide, when you meet in any of those groups, you don't divide into rival political parties and say, okay, you come up with your plan, we'll come up with ours, we're gonna beat you. You, know, you don't do that in anything else in our lives, except, except in, in the political party system in government. That, no, that's that, that's true. And uh, the challenge, though, with Congress is that you have a large number of individual decision makers. So right. in, in the House, you've got more than 400, you know, 435 individual decision makers. Right. Now, how do you coordinate decisions in that case is the problem, right? Because a board of directors is only going to have, you know, a limited number. It's not going to have 400. So that's why some scholars would claim there needs to be some other organizing force like a party to organize that group. Well, now, but Matt, that's total nonsense. Uh, what, what you do is, let's say 435 people get together and there's five of you. You want to be the speaker. I want to be the speaker, you know two other people who you know want to be speaker. And so you go around and you campaign with, with the, the other people and you say, look, I want to do this or I'll help you get your bill advanced or whatever. And then you have a vote among all the people who want to be speaker. Right now, what happens is party A picks its nominee. Uh, and if they have one more vote than the other party that their nominee will win or part and party B does. And you start from the very first day as rivals trying to defeat each other instead of people who are collectively part of a decision-making group 
who will bring up issues and sit around and debate them and, and meet and compromise and, and work out solutions. All right, so I think the, the, the speaker is the easy one, right? So we can, we've, we've elected a speaker now without a party. So that's, a, that's an advance. You do understand that you don't even have to be a member of the house to be a speaker, right? You know, that's, I've, I've often wondered about that. Uh, you don't have to be. I, I know you I, don't, but- Congress uh, could pick you, Matt, to be the I, 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 Who knows, maybe it would be a good rule to have the speaker not be part of Congress uh, and not well, to be part actually, of the party. It's very funny that you said that in Great Britain, when you're an elected speaker, you step down from your party. Right. That's not a bad move. Um, so now the next question that I have, you know, because the parties have created all kinds of institutional rules inside Congress that, you know, right. have embed the party system itself into Congress. So we have right. this concept of ranking member, for instance, in committees right. and in uh, we have the concept of the majority and the minority right. uh, leadership, which are, you know, their, their creations. Uh, of that that have been inserted into the Congress into Congress itself weren't they're not part of the original rules of Congress they're not in the Constitution so what would happen if you remove this concept of majority and minority leader or if you re remove the concept of uh, ranking member on committees how do you assign committee roles you know if we just take committee roles for instance as our second challenge with no party how do we get committees how do we figure out who's on which committees. So you have a committee, you have to set up rules and you say, well, we're going to have a committee on uh, commerce. This is, you know, whatever title you're going to call it, energy and commerce, it used to be, and then something else. Uh, and it'll deal with business issues and trade issues. So we're, we're going to have 10 people on that committee or 20 people on that committee, more likely. Uh, everybody who wants to be on that committee, you know, just enter into this thing. Every one of us in here got elected by the same number of people. We all have the same salary. We all took the same oath of office. We've all been elected. We'll have a drawing. We'll, we'll just have a drawing. We're, we're all one group. You know, um, you, so you can do it by, by lot. You know, you can do it that way. Or you can campaign for a chairmanship. Like, for example, right now, if you want to be the, the Democrats have a majority. And you want to be chairman of the uh committee dealing with foreign affairs. The party leadership will choose, but you will campaign uh, in the Democratic caucus. You know, if, if Matt's in line for it, but somebody else wants it, you're gonna, you're gonna campaign for that position and the caucus will choose. Nothing different except now instead of the 250 or whatever in your caucus, it'll be all 400 will we'll vote on who should be chairman of that committee. Uh, you could deal now what you do if you have no party structure is that the committee as a whole can decide what issues it will bring up and not. The Supreme Court of the United States as a group decides which, which cases they will hear and what they will not hear. So um, you, you can set up exactly the same structure. You can have somebody in charge of administration you know, who makes sure that things are scheduled. You know, um, you could say that any bill, any bill, well, you introduce a bill, Matt, uh, and you find 200 or 100, let's say you find 100 people who will co-sponsor it. Any bill that has the support of at least 100 members of Congress is automatically be going to get a hearing on the floor and a debate and a vote. 
there are so many ways. The whole concept that you have to have a political club to tell you what to do is so mind-boggling and so insulting and, and so demeaning of members of Congress and of voters that it is just, it, it blows my mind. The, the idea that you need these people to guide us and steer us and, and you know, it's just, it, it's sick. It's really, so that's the problem we have. So, you know, there, there definitely sounds like there are mechanisms and even online today with all kinds of technology, there's ways that people can coordinate their actions much better than they used to and much more sure. than they could have. Well, even. Can, I, can I just quickly add to that? Sure. Because one of the arguments for a political party, and this is an argument that is absolutely true, absolutely fair, you need a way for people to organize against you know something government is trying to do you have to have a way to be a counterforce that may have been true in 1805 before the internet before television before all the the means of communication you know uh, now we can all find out anything we need to find out about you or about me you know and about the issues we, we take you don't need that anymore so that may have been a legitimate argument at one point, uh, but it's not now. Um, and, and so that's one of the strongest reasons for party and it's gone. So what about this notion of party as platform where you have an interlocking set of uh, values or rules or, you know, uh, to, to simplify the complexities of, you know, the decisions that have to come before Congress. What is your thought about that idea? I mean, obviously, on the on one side, it's, you know, parties have changed their platforms almost, you know, reverse them over time. So it's hard to say they're consistent. But on the other side, a lot of scholars seem to uh, suggest that this interlocking set of this platform idea is important uh, in order to organize and to and to make decision making possible. Sounds like you you're you you'd rather have the chaos of individual bills going up through Congress rather than some organizing principle. Around. Why, why is that chaos? When you have a board meeting, is it chaos? We don't you know we don't. Why, why would it be chaos to have bills come up and and people are allowed to speak pro or, or con, uh, and at the end of the process you have a vote on it. Uh, you, you there's nothing changed except you're not letting party policy decide what it should be. So uh, a menu. So I've been doing research into the early Congresses and it's very interesting. So you, you take, um, uh, they had parties, they had, they had parties, but here's what it meant. You may be for a uh, strong central government. I may be for a less strong central government on issues that regard how much power you're going to give in the central government. You and I are going to not not vote alike. The next issue may be whether or not you should give foreign aid to Zambia. We may agree on that one. And the next issue may be how do we feel about tariffs? We may disagree on that or we may agree on that. And, and if you go through the early Congresses, when you did not have this party structure, people would vote all sorts of, they, they made, so let me put it this way, Matt, if, 
if I had been, you lived in Oklahoma City and I was running there, how would you react if I said to you, Matt, you have looked at me, you've listened to me, you have decided how smart you think I am or how dumb you think I am, whether or not I understand the issues you care about, uh, whether I, I can articulate a point of view, all this stuff. And I said, okay, you have judged me. And I promise you that if you vote for me, I will go to Washington and do whatever my leader tells me to do. Would you vote for me? <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm from Oklahoma. I'm, if I were a Democrat, I'm from Oklahoma. You know, you size me up. I'm going to go do whatever Chuck Schumer says I should do. Really? Um, but but we've got to meet. Then, when, when you do your early Congress work, I'm, I'm very interested to hear this because a lot of scholars focus on, you know, the last 150 or so years and they don't go earlier in terms of the dynamic between parties and, and what it meant. What was the structure then around this minority majority leader? Were there such things? Were there, when did that notion pop up? Was it? I, I don't know. I can't tell you the year, but I, I can tell you that. And then there were speakers, uh, but the speaker was elected by the members, you know, not by party A or party B. The speaker was elected by the members. So they had parties. So the way I describe it is, uh, there's a difference between party and faction. James Madison said in order to be able to keep any one faction from dominating the country, you would need to empower multiple factions. And so that's what we have. We, we had multiple factions. We didn't have one agenda. So these were shifting factions. We were together on some, some of the people there were pro-British, some were pro-French, some were pro-Westward expansion, some were not, you know, and, but they shifted. They, they, people didn't have a lockstep menu. You know, that, that sounds to me like China. You know, here's the lockstep menu. You will sign on to our dictate or you will sign on to their dictate. And how, how we, there was a guy named E.E. E. Schottschneider who uh, a former political, he was a political scientist many years ago, who said that you have to have political parties for a democracy. It's nonsense. Political parties are destructive of democracy. You know, they, they take away the power of the people and put it into small power-seeking groups who can control who can be on the ballot, who, you know, what your district is like, what bills can be considered. It's the most undemocratic system you can find. Coming from a man who used to be deep into the party system himself. Uh, right. I was a party leader. But, so, but what happened was I got invited to go teach. And the, the secret about teaching that, as you probably know, is that when you're in the classroom, you're really on. But when you're not in the classroom and you have another five days before your next class or three days, you have time to think and reflect and say, whoa, what worked? What didn't? What was wrong? makes a big difference. So before we move on to kind of our uh, more uh, lightning round type of questions, I do want to just you know, touch on the concept of money shortly, because I, I think you, you, have a, you have some strong opinions in that area. Could you share those with us as it relates to Congress? Well, I think it's complicated. Um, I think transparency is important even though you, I could make an argument against transparency. I could, I could say that uh, uh, 
there's an intimidation factor there. You know, as the courts have consistently ruled, you, Matt, as a businessman, uh, have a right to try to influence the outcomes of, of government and what your legislators do. We're supposed to protect uh, the people from government, not protect the government from the people. You know, and you ought to be able to try to influence the outcome. All, all of us ought to be able to. So that's legitimate. Where it gets out of line is when you remove the limits and therefore somebody who is very successful and can spend huge amounts of money because you know they can't make huge amounts of direct contributions, but other ways uh, and affect the outcome much more than other citizens can. That's where it becomes unfair. Uh, and so there need to be rules in place on contributions that don't allow some groups uh, or corporations, for example, the whole idea that a corporation is a person, which is what the, what the court said is just utter nonsense. I mean, it's just the dumbest, one of the dumbest decisions they've ever made. Uh, so uh, I would ban corporate contributions. When, when I was uh, running for Congress, long time ago, corporations could not give a penny. They couldn't even give you, give you a chair for your office. Uh, labor unions could not give you a penny. It all had to come from individuals or political action committees, but a political action committee couldn't give more than $5,000. Uh, an individual couldn't give more than $1,000 as per election cycle. Um, and when it all opened up, uh, then it became a free for all. Uh, and we need to get back to the systems that we used to have that allowed people to speak up and be heard and you could put your thousand dollars in or whatever, uh, but not allow you to have a disproportionate voice in, uh, in who got elected. Right. Well, let's move on to our, uh, our, uh, the questions that I ask all our guests so that later on we can compare answers. Uh, all right. uh, if you're ready for that, we'll move on. Of sure. course. First question here is one that you've talked on extensively. So this one should be a uh, one that you've uh, already given a lot of thought to, which is what do you think uh, congressional representation should mean? Uh, I'm a Burkean, you know, uh, Edmund Burke told his constituents in Bristol that uh, it was his job to listen to them, to hear them, but not necessarily to do what they said because they are less informed about the issues. Uh, they're swept up by the passion of the moment. Uh, I think your job is to be not just a representative, but also a United States member, a United States congressman. You know, not just the, the you know, the delegate from that, that constituency, you know, but somebody who's been elected to give the best judgment to every issue that he or she can do. Uh, and so, the judgment versus uh, reflecting the beliefs uh, idea. So I think you, you've covered that one. Now, what about in terms of the people that he represents in that district? Is it, is it you know, the voters? Is it all the people? Is it, uh, you know, which people is it that he's representing? You know, um, I represented a district, as, as I mentioned earlier before we got on the air, I represented a district uh, that was heavily Democratic. I'm a Republican. Uh, I was a Republican, not anymore. Uh, but I was elected to be the congressman from the 5th District. I was not elected to be the congressman for the Republicans of the 5th District. Um, 
once I went to Washington and I took the oath of office, my loyalty was to the Constitution, to the country. You know, it was, uh, uh, and, and in my constituency, I was supposed to represent the interests of the people in my constituency, whether they voted for me or against me. So what about uh, the future? So this is a question I, I like to ask, um, and it relates to future voters uh, of the district. So uh, clearly one challenge is that the, the government can create liabilities in the future uh, to future voters. Uh, right. But meanwhile, the people voting for the representative are, are, are alive today. So when you conceive of this representation of everyone in the district, does it include the future of the district or is it just the current living members of the district? Well, that's where, where being a Burkean comes in. And that is, you are supposed to be using your judgment as to what is the best thing. It's not to satisfying the hunger of the moment. Uh, you do have to be aware of that. If there are problems with poverty, if there are problems with crime, if there are problems with housing, I mean, you have to address those, but you also have to be thinking about the long-term welfare of the country, and that includes your district. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time on economic development for my district. Uh, I, I worked hard to get people, uh, to get a company that might be thinking about uh, setting up a plant in Ohio or California, I worked really hard to get them to uh, come to Oklahoma instead. Um, so. Um, it is long-term as well. It's just like uh, in, in, in business. Are you worried about uh, what you have to do today or are you worried about where you're going to be in five years? It's the same. You have to do both. Right. So the next question is um, more of a practical one about time. How should Congress allocate its time, whether it's in committee versus uh, oversight versus legislation versus home, district, well, um, the first, let me first address the real misconception is the media, which has some guilt in some of what goes on, uh, tends to look at the time that you're away from Washington as not working. Or uh, in this last election in Massachusetts, where Senator Ed Markey was uh, running for re-election to the Senate, he was attacked for not spending more time in his district. I mean, you can't win. Uh, you, you have an obligation to spend what time you can with your constituents, meeting with them, listening to them. I would on weekends uh, have four or five town meetings a day uh, with my constituents. Spent a lot of time, had a lot of staff in the district uh, to listen to my constituents. But I do think that should be weekends or long weekends when, when, when there's a holiday. I think outside of that, uh, the three days working in Washington is absurd. There's too many big issues. Uh, you should be spending five days in Washington uh, and then have a break, a two week break from time to time where you can be with your constituents, uh, but not enough time is spent actually in Washington doing the business. A lot of it needs to be in the committees. That's where you really dig in, especially if you get rid of the party control, where you really dig into the pros and cons of an issue and see if you can resolve it and amend it and, and you know, come up with a workable solution. That's important. Uh, but you also, by staying more time in Washington, 
you get to know each other. So if Matt, if you if you were in Congress and I was, uh, and you're a Democrat, I'm a Republican, let's just say, uh, you know, or vice versa, whatever you want. Uh, I probably don't know you. I, I just, I mean, there's 435 of us. All I know about you is which, whether you have a D or an R on your forehead. Uh, and so I like you or don't because you're part of the enemy or you're part of my team. Uh, if you actually had more time in Washington, at least the five day weeks uh, and opportunities for people to travel together, which gets frowned on by the media, to travel, to get to know each other, uh, it would make it a lot easier to find cooperation, collegiality, uh, compromise, all of those things. And part of the problem we have now in Congress is that people don't really get to know each other as human beings. They're just, they're just the enemy or the, or the friend. And uh, uh, that's a problem. So it sounds like you'd have them spend more time in DC five days a week uh, for a few, few weeks stretch and then go home for a week or whatever, something like something yes. the two on, one off or whatever. They've got a few different type, type of such proposals. And then some of that time would be spent uh, most of that time would be spent in committee, face to face, and developing relationships with each other. What about the split between kind of legislation and oversight types of activities? Do you have a, a notion of that? Is it the same thing in your mind, or are those two different? Yeah, because that, that's uh, walking and chewing gum at the same time. They're different committees. Uh, so whatever committee you're on may have an oversight subcommittee. So uh, it's doing the oversight business while you're doing something else. Uh, so it's division of labor, and which is what makes it work. Uh, so there is no reason why you have to choose between legislating and oversight. Both of them can go on at the same time. Great. So I think my, my next question sort of follows up on where you were getting with uh, the relationships question in a way, which is how should um, the nature of debate, deliberation, or dialogue happen uh, in Congress, how should this happen? Should it? Should this discussion, this kind of uh, uh, dialogue, happen in committee? Should it happen on the floor? What? What should it happen behind closed doors? Should it be transparent? You know, what? A, you know, should there be some privacy injected into this conversation so people can develop relationships? What's your sort of? What's your prescription for making good discussion, good dialogue, good debate? Well, it's all of the above. For one thing, you do have to allow opportunities for members to sit down together and be candid with each other and put it all on the table and come to agreement. As long as everything is out in the spotlight, then uh, the, the left is going to be keeping close tabs on every Democrat and the right's going to be keeping close tabs on every Republican and you're, you're fearful of saying something that looks like you're willing to compromise. So there has to be space for some things to not be out in the public eye. Uh, just like when you're working out uh, something with your spouse, you know, you, you gotta get behind closed doors and do it just to solve the problem. Um, I think that um, you need to have adequate time to have a chance to get away, to spend, you know, having dinner together uh, where these conversations can unfold naturally uh, and you build trust 
with each other. Uh, I think that's important. Um, I, I think that in a committee system, well, first of all, when you're on the House floor, you can't do away with the time on the House floor because otherwise it's only the members of that particular committee who get to make the decision. When you get on the House floor, all 435 have a right. So here is one final answer I will give to that. Uh, when I was first elected, uh, Tip O'Neill was the speaker. Uh, we had rousing debates, many rousing debates, and they went on and on and, and they were wonderful. It was democracy at its best. When Tip retired, a guy named Jim Wright from Texas became the next speaker. And Jim Wright saying, oh my God, you know, uh, uh, Reagan is so popular. I mean, he even carried Massachusetts twice. He was so popular that members of my Democratic Party are going to be afraid to vote against what he does. Therefore, what we have to do is not let his ideas come to, to the floor, not let him come up. Uh, and so he started instituting closed rules that said the rules committee would say, you could only offer these two amendments and no other that we have to pre-approve or we won't allow any amendments on the bill. Uh, and so completely shut off free debate. Uh, and that's been often used in the years since. So the answer to that is you have to have open rules or at least rules open enough I'm talking about the House now, not the Senate, rules open enough that people who have a different point of view, who want to make an argument for a change or against something, have a right to be heard. Because every one of them, every single one of those people is representing more than half a million Americans. You know, and uh, getting rid of closed rules or at least um, in decreasing the number of closed rules, you know, would be a big step forward. Your debate has to be free, open, and accessible. So it sounds like you're a mix of sort of public discussion in committee along with private time in committee. Right. And then a more open rules process on the floor. Right. So I would say, and I think a lot of people would agree, that one of the worst things that ever happened to Congress was Newt Gingrich's election as speaker. Uh, Newt... Uh, uh, actually turned everything into a constant war. But what motivated Newt and got him elected to be the, re the new Republican leader when he did was reaction against all those closed rules that were shutting Republicans out of the discussion. That gave the fuel for him to take advantage of it and get elected. So um, you, you could say that Newt was the worst one, but if he was the worst one, you know, Jim Wright was the worst one before that because he created the circumstances that allowed the Newt Gingrich to become the leader. Um, next question is looking out, uh, say, 50 years, what fundamental institutional improvement uh, do you want Congress to make? Well, I start with, obviously, removing the ability of the parties to to keep things off the floor or to force things through the floor. Um, I don't object to the filibuster. I think the filibuster is a good idea, but uh, it needs to go back to what it used to be with one change. One is, so first of all, you'd have to go back to the system. You actually had to occupy the floor and you couldn't, I would change it so you could not read your grandma's recipes. You had to talk about the issue and make the case. And the yeah, other is- the cost of humaneness. 
Huh? Yeah. I, filibuster. It would have to be germane, but you'd also, instead of having, you know, at some point you need 60 votes or 66, whatever, to cut it off, I would have a sliding scale. I would say for the first week, okay, require 60 or 66, whatever you want, so that the American people and your colleagues get to actually hear and listen to the case about why you're wrong. And then the next week, cut it down to 55 votes, we'll shut it off. And the week after that, 50 votes or 51 votes and it's done. Uh, so allow time. You, the, the purpose of the filibuster is to allow time to prevent somebody from rushing something through and to allow the debate to be fully joined. After that, there ought to be a way to end it after enough time. Okay, we've all heard it. We know your point. We can weigh it and evaluate it. And now we're going to decide. Excellent. So next question is, you know, the, your, your plans. So uh, what do you have in the works and what are your plans in the coming years? Um, well, I'm working on another book. Uh, and this is the book about why and how you kept coming back with how, why and how to decouple parties, which I support and want to exist and have them thrive, how to decouple them from being able to control the governing system and the, the election systems. So that's basically my book. And to do that, to go back to what you're basically being driven by, you have to start by saying, well, what is the purpose of government? What is the purpose of elections? What is the purpose of legislatures? And I'm going through in my book and pointing out how the party system undermines the achieving of those purposes. And so that's kind of where I'm going. And you'll continue so, to teach and, and, and be at the academic world or, or back to DC or what? Well, you know, I'm not, 30 anymore. And so uh, I'm going to teach as long as they'll let me teach. Uh, and I'm going to write. Uh, I'm not going to go back to, uh, to Washington. I'm not going to go back to, you know, I want to spend the rest of my years uh, basically writing, speaking, uh, teaching, as long as they'll let me do that. Um, so I mean, I, I signed on at, at Princeton this time for Kind of like Harvard, I signed on, you know, for three semesters, and they've now uh, asked me three different times to stay longer. Uh, and at some point, I will do that. But you know, uh, uh, I want to take care of my wife. I want to, uh, you know, we want to take some trips. We want to, we want to see what there is besides work. So, uh, you know, we're going to do that too. But, but I intend to keep writing and speaking as long as I can. Representative Edwards, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been an, uh, a pleasure talking to you and really appreciate all the work that you've done and continue to do. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast on your preferred podcast streaming service. You've been listening to the Sunwater Institute's Reforming Congress interview series. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.